0: weekend so you're stuck with me. And uh, we're starting a new series today uh, called Encounters with Jesus. It's going to lead us up to uh, Easter. So Encounters with Jesus. And if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 16. And um, we're going to read an encounter that Jesus has with uh, kind of a, a crowd that's not real um, excited about what Jesus has been doing. So the, the passage uh, that we're reading this morning uh, is an encounter that Jesus had with some Jews who were struggling to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Okay, so remember, throw yourself back into the time when Jesus comes on the scene publicly in his public ministry to begin to To preach the good news of repentance and faith in him. To repent of their sins and to believe in him. Okay, so uh, this is uh, something new for the Jews. They're not necessarily buying in to that Jesus is the Messiah. And the text actually says that they were seeking all the more to kill him. This is how upset they were. And in the verses just before what we're going to read, uh, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. It's the story, actually, I I preached on January 1st, on New Year's Day. And remember, it was a story about a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and he was at this pool, and Jesus comes up and heals him. But the problem was, uh, Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. Not a problem for Jesus, uh, or should be a problem for us, but it was a problem for the religious rulers. And... um, They were upset because he healed on the Sabbath because you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath and they saw that as work, which is kind of sad. And they were also upset because Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. He was very clear about that. And they viewed that as blasphemy, okay? And um, blasphemy had the penalty of death. And so they were literally conspiring to kill him. So here's the thing. As I read this passage, okay, follow along or close your eyes and listen to it. But here's, here's what, what I want you to think about. Here's the posture I want you to have. I want you to put yourself in their shoes, okay? I want you to think you are upset with Jesus. You are highly skeptical of who Jesus is. You are so angry with Jesus that you literally want to kill him. You have, you have joined a conspiracy to assassinate Jesus, You're also extremely familiar with your Bible, which would have been the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you probably had large portions of the Bible memorized, not just verses or passages here or there, books of the Bible memorized. This is who you are. So I want you to listen with skepticism, okay? So I'm going to read, and I'm going to kind of start where the other story ends, because it connects the passage, so... Um, John 15, 16 to 30. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Meaning he had just healed the man, right? But Jesus answered them, My father's working until now, and I am working. This is, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to, with God. So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what the father, excuse me, only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is him, all that he himself is doing." And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to your word. We come to listen to you explain to us who you really are. May we listen and understand, what does this mean for the world, for us? How shall we understand it and how shall we respond? It's in your name that we pray, amen. So, to get right at it, the main point of this passage is that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. Plainly plainly said, truly God in the flesh. Jesus is truly the Son of God. That's what he's communicating to them. And he's sent by God the Father to accomplish not his will, but the Father's will. And the major focus of the Father's will is that those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God we'll be able to have eternal life. Obviously, the whole of God's will and what Jesus will do has not been completely revealed yet. Remember, this passage, this encounter with Jesus happens at the beginning of his ministry, okay? So we, we have the benefit because we, we have the whole thing, we've read it all, but remember again where we are in its context, but the passage is definitely pointing to Jesus being the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament who will come and save God's people. And we get this from the verses we read, excuse me, the verses we read, but also from the following verses afterward um, that we didn't get a chance to read 31 to 47. And I would encourage you to take time later today to read those because we only read half of Jesus' conversation. And I want you to read the whole thing. We just don't have time to do it all today. We studied this passage in our Friday morning Bible study a couple weeks ago. And one of the phrases to me, after I left our Bible study, I started to think about it. One of the phrases to me was absolutely shocking. It was shocking. And that's the phrase I want to key in on this morning. But before we go there, just a quick story. A couple of weeks ago, I was asked by Taylor and Rachel, my son and daughter-in-law, to, uh, to watch the grandkids for the night, for Wednesday night. They had date night with Jake and Mariah. They're going out. They need me to watch the kids. Addie, Abel, and Theo. Six, three, and three months. Julie had stuff to do. I'm on my own. No problem. I got this. I've raised three kids, you know. I can do this. This is not a problem. So um, I go over, I feed them dinner, you know, we're surviving, everything's going well, it's time to go to bed, Um, you know, we we go in, I'm kind of doing one kid at a time, you know, we go into Addie's room, she pulls out her pajama drawer, completely empty, okay, Um, uh, just find something, is there any pajamas in the dirty clothes hamper? Oh, yeah, 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 so, okay, so we pull one of those out strike one on me, okay? So we go to, to Abel's room, opens the drawer. There's like one thing left. It's some sort of woody pajama thing, and it's like way too tight, but he loves it. So I'm like, okay. We're going to wear this. So I get them down. We're good. And then it's time for me to put Theo down. Theo's three months. He he goes in this big um, suit, this, what is it called? The Merlin thing? Yeah. And so, uh, but again, he, easy, easy kid. So But what happened was, like, I, you know, rocked him for a minute, sang him a song, I'm getting ready to put him in his crib, and I just have this uh uh-oh moment. Does he, do I lay him down on his stomach or on his back? Like, when we, when we grew up, I mean, grew up, when we had kids, it was, you lay him on their stomach. But I knew that had changed, but, like, it changed to, like, their side, and then, did it change back? And I'm like, oh, no, I can't call them, because they're in an escape room somewhere. And I've, so I text my wife, and she's like, no, you lay him on his back. I'm like, okay, good. But I was like, you know, I thought I could do it on my own, but I couldn't. I needed help. I needed help. Now, that story doesn't really do justice about what we're going to talk about today, but I'm trying to, to lead us into that. So here's what verse 30 says, and here's the shocking statement that Jesus makes. Verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's show that slide for a second. Jesus says this. No, let's show the slide that just says, Jesus, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus saying, that. I just want you to think about this for a second. This is Jesus saying this. And when I, I was like, what? Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. Really? Jesus? Nothing on his own. What does that mean? Because I I think it's a profound statement that we, we need to ask some questions. Like, what implications does this statement have for Jesus? And then if Jesus makes this statement, What implications does it have for us? So let's take a look at those two questions. First question is this. What is, what implications does this statement have for Jesus? What does it mean? So as we just read, in the middle of Jesus making his argument to the Jews about him being the son of God, which means that he is saying he is God, everybody's clear on that. His skeptics are clear. This is what he's saying. We're really upset and ticked off about it. But then he makes this statement. And so what Jesus is saying when he says, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus is saying, yes, I am God's son. He's saying, yes, God gave me authority to judge everyone. He's saying, yes, whoever believes in me, We'll have eternal life. But then, Jesus is also saying, I cannot do anything on my own. I can only do the will of the Father. So Jesus is saying that he is dependent upon God the Father to do anything. That's what he's saying. You see, we, we tend to think that Jesus acts on his own behalf. Or that because he is Jesus, he can do anything that he wants to do. He's free to do whatever he wants to do. But that's not how it works. Do you understand? That's not how it works. Are you ready to get into a little theology here for a minute? You, get, you guys ready? Put your thinking caps on. Okay, let's do this. This is going to cause you to think. And I'm going to pull out the Westminster Larger Catechism. Okay? Okay. Um, That's our statement of faith if you want to know what we believe in our theology Just read the, the Westminster confession of faith larger and shorter catechisms One of the orthodox doctrines that we believe in is the doctrine of the trinity Okay, the doctrine of the trinity So the trinity is made up as I think, you know, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence I'm just want to make sure we're clearly Speaking the truth and all on the same page the trinity is made up of God the father God the son and God the Holy Spirit there is no illustration in the world that can adequately adequately explain God in three persons. One God in three persons. Many have tried, all have failed. God is too complex. This idea of the Trinity, it's too complex. But what we do know, we, we know what we know. One God in three persons. So let's turn to the catechism to see what it says, because that helps us put some words and some definitions to how the scriptures and how we try to understand this idea of the Trinity. So question number eight in the larger catechism. So if you don't know, a catechism is a teaching tool that uh, uses questions and answers to teach you about certain things, in our case, it's about theology. Question number eight says, are there more gods than one? Okay, everybody in the world wants to know the answer to this question. Here's what we believe. There is but one only, the living and true God. You know, we prayed for the, for the folks in London in their church planting efforts. And there's a lot of Hindus in London. They believe that there are thousands of gods. We believe there's one God, the living and true God. There's only one. There's not many ways to get to, the mount- to get to the top of the mountain to where God is. There's only one way because there's only one God. Then it's followed up, obviously, by question number nine that says, how many persons are there in the Godhead, in this one God? And the answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one true God eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Now, it would take me weeks to go through this. There are volumes and volumes and thousands of books written on the Trinity. But these are the words that we have. I think it's it's plainly stated. These three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. They work in perfect harmony. So the Trinity, here's, here's the point. The Trinity is designed. God designed himself so that each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is interdependent upon one another. They're interdependent upon each other. We see this stated here in the passage where Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. But also up in verse 19 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Okay? So we're seeing this interdependence. The son is dependent on the father to reveal his will. The father is dependent on the son to achieve his will. Both father and son are dependent on the Holy Spirit to carry out the will of the father and the son. And on and on it goes. It just keeps going. Again, the complexity of God is, is in most ways completely, you know, we can't understand it, but in some ways we can. This is what we have This is what we can't understand about God. One in three persons, they're completely interdependent upon one another. Uh, These three persons of the Godhead are constantly relying on one another, working together in perfect harmony to achieve the will of God. And so, if Jesus is dependent on God the Father to do anything, then that means a few things. One, it means that Jesus is purely focused on doing the will of God. That is his focus, to do the will of God. That Jesus knows his mission and ministry. And that is to carry out the will of the Father. It also means that Jesus is fully satisfied to carry out the will of the Father. You see, Jesus doesn't carry out the will of the father grudgingly or reluctantly or with resentment like well I don't want to do I don't want to just do what you tell me to do no they're they're in such perfect harmony that Jesus carries out the will of the father with joyful obedience it's this beautiful it is the most beautiful relationship in the entire universe and we need to pay attention to it the interdependence that the trinity has upon all three persons one god i think too that this reveals the humility of jesus right when we're thinking about this encounter that we're having with jesus it reveals part of his his humility that even jesus is dependent on others meaning not just anyone but he's dependent on the other two persons of the trinity the father and the spirit So, that's the implication it has for Jesus. He's dependent, interdependent upon the, the Father and the, and the Spirit, and they all work together in perfect harmony. But the second question is this, because I, th- I, I want to know. Like, I had to know. I had to, that's why I, this, as this phrase, this statement shocked me, I'm like, I've got to figure this out. So, I was asking myself the question, what implications does this have on us? What does this mean for me? If Jesus is dependent on the other two persons of the Trinity, then who are we dependent on? Well, we're dependent on all three. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who we are dependent upon. That's where our dependence comes from. We need to understand. Get this. Think about this for a second. We need to understand that we have been created and designed by God himself to not be able to do anything on our own. You're created and designed to not be able to do anything on your own. All right, this is very humbling, but again, we're in good company because Jesus needs the Trinity as well. So here's what I want you to think about. If you feel weak or you feel inadequate, then you are feeling the reality of how you were designed by God. It's actually a good thing. When you feel weak and when you feel inadequate, it's a good thing. When Jeremy feels weak and inadequate because of the pain and the, and the suffering that he's going through in his body, He was designed to not try to deal with that pain on his own. He's designed by God to run to Jesus and to be dependent upon him to get him through this time. We can't do it on our own. We're not created that way. And what I want you to see is that's a good thing. Because if you're like me, you feel weak and inadequate a lot of the time. But we have Jesus who we can go to. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who we depend on. So, you know, we think we need to be self sufficient and individually self reliant. Our mantra in life tends to be I don't need anybody. As believers united to Christ, we have to stop thinking this way, it's not healthy. And it's not how you were designed. So it just, it's, you're going to be frustrated. So here's the question that goes along, kind of flows out of this. So why are we dependent? Okay, why are we dependent? Well, I've mentioned we were created and designed this way. It's in our DNA. We need to stop fighting against it, right? We need to stop feeling like a failure when we can't do something on our own. God doesn't want you to feel like a failure when you can't do something on your own. Even parenting, right? Like you weren't, God designed for to have two parents. Sin enters in the world, it's not always true, but that's God's design to have two parents for a kid. That's why I couldn't do it on my own. My wife wasn't there. I mean, we're not parents of our, you know what I'm saying. We, we, we're just, you know, it, it, we're designed to, to be together. God does not want you to feel a, like a failure. He simply wants you to trust in him. God wants you to engage him in the ways in which he has designed you, and we're designed to be reliant on Christ and his power to provide for us. So here's the other thing I'm not saying. We're not saying that what we need is supplemental help either. Like, um, it's not just that we have some deficiency and we need a vitamin boost, okay? What what, What I'm saying is that without Christ in your life, you have no life you understand that you have no life without Christ you're not just living halfway you're not living at all you don't exist apart from Christ now you may say well I have a physical existence you know what your physical existence depends on Christ holding up the entire universe and if you don't believe me just go back and read Colossians 1 it explains it really well now that you have a physical existence and that's dependent upon Christ you also apart from Christ have no spiritual life in existence apart from Him we we are completely dependent upon Him Colossians 3 Colossians is a great book about this whole topic Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says this for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, what Paul's trying to tell the church in Colossae is this. When you became a Christian, when you, when you gave your life to Jesus, and you put your faith in him, you died. Your life died. Remember 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Behold, like um, we've become new creatures, the old has gone, the new has come. We died, and now our life is hidden with Christ, who is your life. That's what it says. I love the way Paul puts that. It's, it's so clear. We don't have life apart from So Jesus has united himself to us in an inseparable bond. Remember Jesus' teaching uh, in John 15 about abiding in him? He goes on this long Sort of uh, teaching about abiding in Christ And I'm the vine, you're the branches You know the story And so the word abiding Literally means an inward, enduring, personal communion It is an inward, enduring, personal communion with Jesus And in John 15:5, Jesus says this it's, This is going to be no surprise Apart from me, you can do nothing That's what he tells us Again, it can't be any clearer Can it? Apart from me, Jesus says, Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything. You are stuck with Jesus. Jesus, he's just straightforward about it. You will do nothing. You uh, will not bear any fruit apart from Christ. You will accomplish nothing and your life will be nothing apart from him. So that's the first reason why we are dependent on Christ. The second one is that we are dependent on Christ because we are sinful and we need a savior. We need a redeemer and a sanctifier. Only Jesus saves and sanctifies. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one who died on a cross and was raised from the dead Only the death of Jesus can atone for your sins. That just means that only Jesus can wash away your sins and make you clean and acceptable in the sight of God. Only Jesus can bear the wrath of God that was meant for you. He's the only one that can do that. Only Jesus can take your sin upon himself and take his righteousness and clothe you with it. That's how it works. We are dependent on Christ because we need a, a, a Savior and a sanctifier. Let me just close with this. There's two groups of people in the room right now. And this is the way it is every week. I'm just going to put it out there. There's two groups of people here. Those who are united by, cre- by faith in Christ... Those who are are united by faith to Christ, that's one group, and those who are not. I want you to think about which group you're in. There's no middle ground. It's either or, right? You're you're either united to Christ by faith or you're not. You have not put your faith in Jesus yet. I want you to think about which group you're in. What both groups struggle with, both groups, is belief that leads to an abundant life. We both struggle with belief. We both struggle with our faith in believing in eternal, that, um, Jesus offers us an abundant life. We both do. For the Christian, this passage this morning, this message is meant to do this, to strengthen your belief in Christ. It's meant to challenge your weak faith. It's meant to make you examine your heart and to look for ways that you are trying to live apart from Christ. There's no, I'm just, I wanna be as clear as I can that's what we're trying that's what the message is about for the christian for those who don't have faith in jesus this passage this message is meant to call you to faith in jesus it's meant to explain to you that your life is absolutely meaningless apart from christ i know that is a bold and offensive statement to some but it's the reality of what the bible teaches and this is what we put this is what we understand to be true about life it's meant to make you examine your heart and realize that you need to turn away repent from your old way of trying to live life on your own and to turn in faith to jesus to believe that only jesus died for your sins to bring you into a right relationship with god That's what it means for the one who hasn't put their faith in Jesus yet. That's what we're trying to do today. And here's what I want you to think about. Jesus is right in front of you. He has squared off with you. Okay? He's grabbing you by the shoulders. He's not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. He is not mad at you. This is both groups. He has a ginormous smile on his face. And he's grabbing you by the shoulders. And he's saying to you, "Let's do this. Let's live life together." It is the most terrifying, amazing, joyful, scary life you will ever experience but will be life to the fullest. It will be the most abundant life that you could ever have. Before I close in prayer, I'm gonna give you a a few moments to respond to Jesus right now. For those who are in Christ, just means examining your heart and, and, and confessing ways in which you have tried to do it on your own. And live life on your own. And for those who have not put your faith in Jesus, I pray that this is a time that you do it now. You stop trying to live life on your own and you give it over to Him, to put your faith in Him. Let's just have a moment. Thank you, Jesus, for this encounter that we had with you today, where you have revealed to us this shocking statement that you can do nothing on your own. It pulls us in to realize that you are are part of something even bigger than yourself, and that you are interdependent upon the Father and the Spirit and This amazing God, you work together to accomplish your will, but that will includes giving us eternal life and relationship with you and abundant life now and forever. Lord, give us the faith to believe this. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.